What is your name is how that story ends. Um, like what makes a number two spe- pencil so special, right? Anyone ever thought that? Like why number two? Or what's nougat and where does it come from? A few of you are, uh, see? What came first, the can opener or the can? Really? I mean, maybe the can opener. I don't know. Um, some of the women in the room are, are expecting children. Can you drive in the carpool lane? Is that okay if you're pregnant? Um, why, why does Hawaii have interstate highways? That's the question I've always wondered. doesn't make sense to me, but... So none of you really are with me, but seriously... Uh, <laughs> Questions frame how we see the world, like what grieves and frustrates us, what gives us joy. Questions gather us into community. Sometimes you come to church on Sunday, you wonder who's going to be there, who's going to be preaching, what's it going to be about. Gather us in. Um, will God be there? Questions help us understand who we are, where we're going in life. And so to that end of this series, as we're exploring this relationship between body, soul, and spirit, kind of what makes us uniquely us. Uh, it's vital that we do this with an eye toward the questions, I think. We looked at a question last week, uh, the story of Jacob, God asking him, what is your name? And so we're looking at a question again this week, God's question to Adam and Eve, um, where are you? And that question, those questions, ultimately frame how we relate to God, Um, understand ourselves, and then receive the gift that God wants to give us, which is healing and wholeness in our lives. And so uh, the context for the story, real quick, Adam and Eve have just eaten some of the fruit of this tree of knowledge, this so-called forbidden fruit, as we read. And they're aware of God's presence. Uh, They're literally afraid of God in that moment, which is emblematic in some translations as you read it. They they realize they're naked. Uh, This sensation of shame that rises with, wells up within them. And so what do they do? They hide amongst the trees of the garden. And while they're hiding, God asks them a one-word question in Hebrew, Ayeka, where are you? And that's a profound question, very important question. Uh, As we read the Bible, and as we come to that question, what we discover is the Bible not only speaks of our search for God, that's how many of us understand faith, like I'm seeking God, I'm seeking after God, I'm, you know, I want to know God, I want to know what God has for my life. That's how most of us understand faith. But faith in this question is God's search for us. Where are you? I heard C.S. Lewis say this once, it's not so much the faith, the quantity of faith we have in God, but the quantity of faith God has in us that really makes the difference. Job saying, thou huntest me as a fierce lion in Job 10. Or David saying, Lord, you've searched and known me. You know where I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts. You search my path. You're well acquainted with all my ways. Um, so this, this is the mysterious paradox of biblical faith that Martin Buber talks about. That, that, that God is pursuing humanity. He'll be involved in all of our yearnings. Faith is a response to God's first question, where are you? So this morning, we're just going to look at that question. We're going to unpack it under three heading, headings. Where are you? Basic outline. How do you like that? And we're going to start with where. Where is the question of location? Uh, where is one of the five journalism questions? Uh, which identifies the scene of the crime, the setting of the play, the place of birth, or in this setting... All of the above. <laughs> um, God, God's where in Genesis 3 isn't just a question of Adam and Eve's physical location, but their emotional and spiritual location as well. So as I noted, it's just prior to that, that Adam and Eve took this fruit from the tree of knowledge in Genesis 3, 7. Their eyes are open. They know nakedness. And what's, what's significant about that context 
is, is if you read earlier in the story, in chapter 2, which we didn't get to read today, but if you go back there sometime, we're told that the man and woman were created by God in the garden from the dust of the ground, and then God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, right? And that word for breath is a Hebrew word. It's nephesh. And that word appears over 700 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Really important word. And in this context, this is the breath from which Adam and Eve become living beings. Uh, which is, by the way, the word nephesh as well. To be a living being is the word nephesh. The breath of God, nephesh, be a living being, is nephesh. And so Adam and Eve, you could say, receive the breath of God, God's nephesh. They become the breath of God, God's nephesh. They become the image bearers of God. Um, and, and so nephesh is a word, as you read the Old Testament, that is applied to people throughout. People are nephesh. Often translated, and this is where we come to our topic, as soul or souls. It's a way of, and it's a way of describing in some ways the, our relationship to God. So, for example, the Hebrew Shema, Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Thus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your nephesh, and with all your strength. Another example of the usage of this word is in Genesis 46, which described the members of Jacob's family. So we, we talked about him last week. It says that when they went down to Egypt, they're fleeing Lot, or I'm sorry, Esau, those that were with him, his direct descendants, not counting his sons and his wives, numbered 66 persons. And that last word, 66 persons, is 66 nephesh. 66 nephesh went with Jacob down to Egypt. So we could say that this morning, beginning with Adam and Eve, continuing on through to us, we don't so much have souls as we are souls. We are living souls. We are nephesh, which is the second reason for God's question. So where, it's a question of location, are, where are you? Are is a question of being. We're animated by the breath of God. We are given the breath of God. That's God's nephesh coursing through all of our veins this morning, our bones. And it's in that context that we experience life only. They've tried to clone human life. It hasn't worked. It's the breath of God, I would say, theologically, that it's the only way. It's a, and so that, that experience of receiving the breath of life uh, and relating that life, uh, you could call that soulful living. And they're given a context for soulful living, at least in the beginning. You see in the beginning of the story, in chapter 2, soulful living in the Garden of Eden, Eden is initially a life of freedom. In verse 16 of chapter 2, a life of generosity, Adam names all the animals. He's just generously giving names out to people or to animals. Um, vulnerability and intimacy in Genesis 2.25, it says this right before we began our reading, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Vulnerability, intimacy. And the reason that's actually a significant thing to note is that this entire life for which we were created, not just them but us, this soulful life, this life of, of living in relationship to God, um, heart, mind, soul, strength, all of our nephesh, that all changed in a moment for them. Genesis 3, 7, they knew nakedness and, and made coverings for themselves. Um, the nephesh, their souls were somehow broken by that experience in the garden. So they no longer experienced intimacy for which they were created. Uh, instead, they're hiding they experienced lying. They experienced deceit. Eventually backstabbing and murder in their family as Cain kills Abel. The loss of freedom. Absolute loss of freedom. And loss of union with God. They're, they're cast out of the Garden of, of Eden. They begin to hide from God almost immediately. There's no longer generosity but fear. A mindset of scarcity. I've got to hold tightly onto my stuff. 
protect my stuff because who knows who's going to take it. Now, some of us, many of us, in fact, I was put myself in this boat, will say that moment of knowing nakedness and the brokenness that follows, it stems from their, Adam and Eve's, willful disobedience. They took, they, they, they took this forbidden fruit. They, they kind of got what's coming to them. <laughs> like, they should have known better. God said so. We're sinners in the hands of an angry God. We get what's coming to us, right? There's something fundamentally bad about us. We're fallen, right? Um, and that's one interpretation. In fact, there's a whole strand of theology and church tradition that preaches that message. I was trained up in that, in the Reformed tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, I, and I don't agree with it. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you right now. And the reason why I don't agree with it is based on something that's right here in this text, something we'd be really wise to take note of. So remember, Adam and Eve are both naked and unashamed, Genesis 2.25. And the word for naked, here, I'm giving you a lot of little Hebrew words here, but this is kind of important stuff. The word for being naked is the Hebrew word arom, A-R-O-M. And the reason that's important is, is in Genesis 3.1, that's verse 25, last verse of chapter 2, verse, first verse of chapter 3, which we read, there's this other word that describes a, saint, a serpent. He suddenly appears in the story, just out of the blue, and he's, he's, he's described as crafty. The serpent was more crafty than all the other wild animals God had created. And the word for crafty is the Hebrew word arum, A-R-U-M. And what you have to remember about, about uh, Genesis is it's Hebrew poetry. This is a poet. And so there's alliteration and things like this happening. And this is just alliteration. Arom, arum. Adam, Eve, arom. They, they're naked. They don't feel shame. They're, they're vulnerable. They're intimate. The serpent's arum. He's crafty. And so you have this wordplay. The man and the woman encounter this wordplay, the certain serpent's arum, his craftiness, his lies, his deceit, and they respond to it. And they eat the forbidden fruit. Their, and their aroma changes, Genesis 3, 7. They, they know nakedness. Their aromeness becomes shame. Uh, which is a subtle but intentional way for the author to say that the consequence for eating from the tree of knowledge, it stems from a much d- deeper place than just simply willful disobedience. Like, we're not just talking about apples here, as if that's a thing. I know some of you go, what, what was the big deal? <laughs> it's just an apple. I like apples. But... I mean, sin's never merely or even really misbehavior. Just, uh, you know, in the evangelical church, we often say smoking and drinking and premarital sex, it's gonna, all these things, swearing is going to send you to the pit of hell. It's never really that. It's much, more de- it's much deeper and more insidious than that. I'm not saying those things are good. Hear me? I'm just saying there's something, although I do drop curse words once in a while and I'm regret it, but there's something much deeper and insidious than that, and which is the essence of evil, evil, the shame that they experience, that we experience, the breaking of, of our souls, our nephesh, the breaking of intimacy with each other and with God, the loss of the context of soulful living for which we were created, generosity, freedom, all those things stems from the aroomness of the snake. Do you hear this? His craftiness, his deceitfulness, he's a liar and the father of lies, Jesus says in John 8, right? He, he did God say? No, you'll not. Because God knows. You hear that? It's his lies and our propensity to listen to those lies and, and believe those lies that's at the root of everything. And, and the root of evil, the essence of evil is a lie. It's a falsehood and it's, it's a believing in that lie or those lies. The, the thing that's... The essence of sin, the essential lie beneath all the lies is insult on 
and a denial of the goodness of God. Some of us retreated when we sang that song. I can't say that. And I would just say it's something in our hearts that can't say that. Something that got in there at the beginning of time. The, the, the thing the serpent tries to get us to believe, the thing the serpent succeeded in to some degree, that's gnawing at the root of all of our, whole, our souls in this room, because it passed in, it's not, it hasn't gotten completely out, it's probably never going to get completely out until Jesus comes back and sets all things right. Uh, what went in there, because we believe it, is that does God really care? Did, does God really care about you? Does God really care about this? Does God really care about the world out there? I mean, really, God, what does the serpent say? Comes to Adam and Eve. He says, I've been, hey, I've been watching you really carefully these last few days. And, you know, I'm really concerned about you. And this is the first chance I've had to get alone with you, you know, because that guy. And, and he's, he's tyrannizing you. He's trying to keep you down. And he doesn't want you to reach your full potential. And God knows that if you did this or that, you'd be happier. And I want you to be happy. God knows that if you did this or that, you'd be more powerful. And I want to give you power. God knows that you'd have more influence. You'd be rich. That's why he says in verse 5, God knows. God knows. You see what he's saying? He says, seize the day. Create yourself. Exert yourself. Assert yourself. Don't submit. (laughs) Be free. Live your best life. Like, reach your full potential. Your soul needs to be free. You need to be free. God doesn't care a lick about you. God doesn't know what you really need. Only I know that. Only you know that. Only you know what you need, right? And it's those lies that are the lie beneath the lie and that are at the root of all the problems we're having today. Your problems are world's problems. The root of the problem for our soul says not that we make bad decisions, we do. I make stupid decisions every day. I've made a couple today already. I, I could tell you about one I made this week, but I'm not going to go on that rabbit trail I told somebody else about. But we suffer from those. And we believe, it's because we believe in the lies and we make choices based on those lies. I fail, I become failure. I experience rejection, I must be rejection. I have an addiction to pornography or I wrestle with my sexual identity. I'm sexual brokenness. I, I'm my body image. I'm my limitations. I'm my inability to make wide decisions with money. I'm, and I'm just here, here to tell you today, that those are lies. Absolute lies from the pit of hell. The truth is we are each fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 14. The truth is the Lord takes great delight in you and rejoices over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 that I read earlier. The truth is we are God's masterpieces. We are made to do the work of God, work of Christ, that he prepared for us in advance to do. Ephesians 2.10. And yet, even with those great truths right in front of us every day, we bind the lies. And because of those lies, we listen to lies, we make choices based on those lies, we become joined to the serpent, the enemy, in his craftiness, his roomness. Our roomness, our roomness, our nakedness, our ability to be vulnerable, becomes shame, and we need to hide. You see that? Verse 7, they craft coverings, and verse 8, they craft hiding places. They become crafty, just like him. Not the same Hebrew words, but the, the lies of the enemy and the belief in, in, in response to those lies leads to a shift in not just where we are, but who we are. Remember God's question, where are you? It's a question of being. Where are, who, where are you today as you st- sit here? Before this moment, Adam and Eve were living in broad daylight, unrestrained fellowship with God, intimacy with each other, courage, freedom, generosity, 
I want to give it all away. I wish I could. I wish I had the, the courage to do that. After they're hiding behind coverings, behind trees, they become hiders. And we as their progeny have been hiding ever since. Just, you know, there's a story I once heard about this man who went to see a doctor. You've probably heard this story. He's really depressed. Doctor examines him, finds nothing wrong with him. So he says, hey, there's a circus in town. And uh, there's this marvelous clown named Grimaldi, Grimaldi there. And that sounds like a terrible prescription, but anyway, everybody goes to see him and they laugh and they feel better. You should go see Grimaldi. And you know what the guy says? I am Grimaldi. I can't go there. I'm Grimaldi. We are Grimaldi. <laughs> we hide who we really are. We hide ourselves from those around us. We hide ourselves from God. We try and hide ourselves from ourselves. There's just too much. I can't face myself in the mirror. If, if I really do that, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to fall apart. Uh, we hide because we believe that if, if anybody really knows, if people here know me, I will not be accepted. We hide because we, we've gone through so much in our lives, and so we project images of who we're not to others. Uh, but who we're not and who we are is just so well hidden, you know, it's so well hidden. We hide, we put on a smiling face even though we feel pretty sad. Uh, we look confident when we're afraid. We act as if we have it all together when we're falling apart. We, we muddle through the emotions of believing when we are just full of doubt. Well, I don't know. We feign interest when we honestly just don't care. Uh, I'm not, that's not, I'm sorry, I'm not blasting you guys. In the words of Adam Neve, we cover up our nakedness with fig leaves of pretense like we have it all together when we're just really Grimaldi. We just don't. Which is the final reason for God's question. Where are you? So it's a question of location, a question of being, and a question of identity. Where are you? God cares about you. God's question invites you to come out of hiding, take off your fig leaves, remove your Grimaldi's makeup, and just be you. Be real. Like, that's the very good news of the creation story. You think good news comes in New Testament. There's good news right here. When we hide from God, God comes seeking us and calling out to us and saying, where are you? Where are you? And that question leads us deeply into the searching heart of God. It reminds us that God always pursues us in love. He doesn't wait for us to begin, coming to church, reading our Bible, starting to pray. He just is always searching after us. Nothing can extinguish the flame in God's heart that burns for you. Nothing. No, nothing you've ever done or will do. It, you cannot. <laughs> it's an inextinguishable flame. When God asks where, are, where you are, where we are, it's as if God's saying, my heart is aching for you right now. I want to reconnect with you intimately, personally. I, I grieve the distance between us right now. I long for your companionship. Like when we were, Adam and Eve were walking with God in the Garden of Eden. I long for that time. And I'm going to search for you until I find you. I mean, has it ever struck you this is the same exact message Jesus is always preaching about God? And there's so many places he does this. One of my favorites in Luke 15, this story of this woman who had 10 coins and she lost one, right? A million dollars and she loses 100,000. I still got 900,000. Write it off as a loss, right? You remember what she does? She lights a lamp. 
She fetches a broom. She starts to sweep. Put it in our terms of she takes all the cushions off the couch. She scours all the junk in her junk drawer. She empties all the pockets in all of her clothes. Have you ever done this? Looking for that one dollar? Probably not. She looked and she looked and she looked until when? Until it got dark? No. Until she got tired? No. Until the broom wore out? No. She swept and swept and swept until she found her coin. The one coin. She looked as long as she had to. She looked until she looked everywhere. She thought she just looked tirelessly. There are no limits to God seeking love. Nothing can ever extinguish that. Nothing. Uh, Jesus says this is a, God is exactly like this woman. This is who God is. He's not like what the Satan describes him as. God looks for each one of us until we're found. He's probably looking for you right now. You just don't know it. You think you found him and somehow you're in with him and you're at church and he's looking for you right now. He's looking for me. I'm, even though I'm yakking away up here, like we are loved with an unlimited love, an everlasting love, a love that will never let up and never let go. And that's that passionate desire for intimate relationship that we need to come back to every time we gather. There's always behind a place where God's looking for us, a relationship God's looking to establish. Always. Within every place God has you, God's seeking for you to find and be found in relationship. And so as I often say, where you live matters. Just to apply this to our lives. The house you live in matters to God. The neighborhood you live in matters to God. The neighbors you have matter to God. Uh, your work, where you work matters to God. That context is important. God doesn't just have a purpose for you there. God wants to find you there. Relationships also to invest in. People to pour into. Walking dead, lost, hurting hearts, wounded souls. Nefesh. <laughs> if every person is created in the image of God, all of us have that nefesh. And some of us just don't realize it. And there are people in your lives that God's planted you there for just to ask the question, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you? You're not alone. You don't have to be alone. I'm right here. (laughs) I don't have all the answers, but I'm with you. I'm for you. Uh, This is why it's so vital that we continue to seek ways to engage people on the margins of our community. Great that we're gathered. Really safe space for us. But there are homeless living right around the corner here. Uh, There are women and men walking the streets at night that are being sold into prostitution. There are children that don't have parents. (laughs) Just don't. They're stuck in a foster care system and wondering, does anybody care? There are students, some of who attend here, who are drifting through high school alone. There are couples, some who attend here, who are, who are doing the same, hiding, pretending, putting on their best faces, wondering, is this it? There are many people who have entered that last third of life who are also wondering the same question, is this it? Is this it? What's left? God's grand question in the light of new creation is, where are you? Where are y'all? <laughs> it's the question that just calls and calls and calls to us. It's a question for each of us to be pondering and, and asking and responding to. In fact, it demands a response. Uh, throughout the story of the Bible, we see this question being asked in a variety of different ways. Uh, and throughout the Bible, we see this re- remarkable consistency in the response. Genesis 22, Abraham is asked at the sacrifice of his son Isaac. Joseph, as he's dreaming about his and his family's future. 
Hagar, she's running for her life from, a, from an abusive situation. Jacob, who we explored last week, is wrestling with the failure of his past. Moses at the burning bush, Samuel as a young boy, Isaiah as the prophet, Mary, who would become the mother of God. All of them. In each case, God asks one way or another, where are you? Where are you right now that I might find you, be in relationship to you, and then use you? And in each case, the faithful response is just a simple Hebrew word, not literally, but in figurative ways, hinene. Ayeka, where are you? Hinene, here I am. I'm right here. Because this is really all, the only place you can be. You might be somewhere else right now. Um, I know you're not worried about the Seahawks, but you're worried about other things. Hinene, uh, here I am which can be translated, I'm right here physically, but also see me or behold me. God calls, so we can call back. Be seen and be held by God. And I grasp this. I've shared this story once before, but I grasp this profoundly for the first time as a young parent when our daughter Mara, and this is years ago back in Pennsylvania, first time she ever lied to us. I, I to this day, don't remember what that lie was about, but I do remember it was her first lie, <laughs> as if that's a thing. Um, and it really doesn't matter, but I searched the house high and low. I'm like home alone. Elizabeth's at work and Martin's preschool kid. I couldn't find her anywhere. I was just frantic. I was desperate. I almost impulsively, I literally, I kid you not, I almost impulsively called 911. So I went, I, you know, looked again, went to her room and noticed the closet door shut. I'm like, duh, I stink at hide and seek. But, um, I put my hand on the closet door and then I put my ear to it. And I didn't hear anything, but, but Marin sensed my presence. Because from inside the closet, I heard this muffled, <laughs> tremble invitation. I'm right here, Daddy. I'm in here. Here I am. And so I went in, hiding in her closet. It's pitch dark. There's no lights in there. Uh, kind of a walk-in closet. She's just covered in this heap of dress-up clothes and blankets, like hiding from me. Just a sweaty mess. And I climbed under there with her and held her. And she was desperate to be found. The reason I don't know about the lies is because we never talked about it. And you know what she said to me? This is like this little preschool. Let me have preschoolers and you get this. She said, Dad, it feels like part of my heart broke off today. Remember the nephesh we were given? I had an opportunity in that moment to say, no, no, it's there. Let me hold you. Um, See, it's God's question to every one of us, whether we're hiding or just lost, whatever, wherever you are today, God's along going to find you and just hear from you. Here I am. I'm right here. I don't have much to offer you, God. My heart's broken, just like that little girl. My faith is weak. I don't even know if I can pray anymore, but I'm right here. I came to church. I'm available, God. Your will be done in my life. Would you restore to me the joy of your salvation? Would you help me, God? Would you see me? Would you hold me? That's what I need, God. This is to the end. Uh, I want to invite us to respond that way this morning. Here I am. We, that's all we can do. There's not, I can't give you a list of things to go do today. You can be in one place right now, and you're here. Welcome to Bethany Northeast. And so this is the moment we have. We can't be in tomorrow yet. We can't live in yesterday. So let's be here. 
for this moment, just available to God, and allow God to do what only God can do. And one way I'd like to begin by do, doing this, I'm going to invite uh, our worship leaders back up. They're here somewhere. They're, maybe not yet, but there will be. Uh, I mentioned Isaiah the prophet, and he uses this word henene at the end of that story of his call in Isaiah 6. So I went ahead and put this into this sort of unison prayer. And uh, I'd like to just have us do this together. It'll be on the screen. And, uh, and then I'll close us with a word of prayer, and then we'll have a couple more songs to respond with. Go and put that up. Great. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Go to the next screen. Yeah. (laughs) And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And I said, Here am I. Send me. God, that is our prayer this morning. Uh, we know you're seeking us. Uh, and, uh, God, I specifically want to pray for anyone who's been hiding, God, who's resisted being found by you this morning. I, God, in the ways that even, I guess, all of us have resisted being found by you. We know you're seeking us, and there's places in our lives where we just can't bear to be found. Places of shame, places of hurt, places of deep unbelief. Here we are, God. Would you be gentle with our hearts this morning? Um, Thank you that you'll be who you say you are. You'll be good to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship God.